1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. As we began this series on what happens when you die, last week, I pointed out that Paul has three preferences with regard to living and dying in descending order. In fact, if you want to just, in my Bible, it's about four pages to the right. If you want to go to last week's text, I'm going to point out where these three preferences come from in case you missed it. Second Corinthians chapter 5. His first preference, he said, is not to die at all, not to have his body and soul rent apart, but rather to live until the second coming of Jesus when he would be swept up into immortality and his old body would be overclothed with immortality and he would be changed. Verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 5 says, While we are in this tent, this temporary mortal body, we groan being burdened because we don't want to be unclothed. That is, we don't want our body to be stripped off of our soul. We don't want to be unclothed, but to be clothed upon in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He has no desire in and of itself as his first preference to have this body stripped off his soul and the soul sent back to heaven while his body decays in the ground. That is not preference number one. Preference number one is, come Lord Jesus, wrap it up, and while I'm still alive, take me up into immortality, transform this old body into a new body, make me new as I receive you into your kingdom. That's preference one. Now, preference number two is if God wills not to send Jesus before Paul dies, then Paul would in fact prefer to die and be with Jesus than he would to live in the burden and the sickness and the sin and the failure of this life. Verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 5. We are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So his second preference, if the second coming doesn't happen before he dies, is that he would, in fact, die and go to be 
with the Lord and escape the groanings and the struggles and the sickness and the sin. Philippians chapter 121, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he says two verses later, I am hard pressed from both directions. That is the ministry direction of staying and the glory direction of going. And he says, I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ For that is very much better than anything I could experience in this world. And so he's willing to go, even if it means being painfully stripped of his soul, leaving his body behind. Preference number one is not to die, but to experience the second coming and be transformed in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. And preference number two, if not that one, is that he would die and go to be with Jesus, for that is far much better than anything this world has to offer. And preference number three is a lifetime of faith and service, if that's what God wills. Verses 6 and 7 of 2 Corinthians 5, We are always of good courage and know that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord and we... Walk by faith and not by sight. And he's willing, under the sovereign decisions of God, not to experience the second coming before he dies, and not to die soon, but to die after a long life of living by faith and not by sight. That's preference number three. If God wills, I will live and I will serve and I will advance the joy and the faith of as many people as I can. And where I ended last week was by asking us if we are in sync with these priorities. Do you set your mind on things that are above? Do you love it? that your citizenship is in heaven and that you are on tiptoe awaiting a Savior who will transform your lowly bodies into a body like His glorious body? Do you count death to be more gain than loss? Even before vacation, even before marriage, even before children, even before it is written, even before you name it, what are you looking forward to? Is death to you more gain than all that you would lose here as it was for Paul? Are you so entangled with this world that leaving it would be the worst thing you can think of? I sometimes fear that in our praying for the healing of people, we become worldly. When I pray for revival at Bethlehem and in the American church, which I do a lot, my first prayer is, Lord, pour out your spirit in such a way that your people desire Christ more than they desire anything. Pour out your Spirit on this church in such a way that we are disentangled from the world 
and radically devoted and full of allegiance to Jesus more than we want next fall's school, more than we want that job assignment, more than we want the wedding in August, more than we want the child, more than we want retirement. Just make us love you, Father. That's revival. Revival is not first miracles like gifts of healing. It's not first prophetic utterances. It's not first speaking in tongues. As precious as those things are, and I do mean precious. Revival is first a white-hot love for Jesus Christ that makes you ready to die gladly at any moment and leave everything behind for the surpassing worth of gaining Christ. That's revival. That's what I pray for First, because it is possible to have the gift of healing and to love health more than we love going to be with Christ. It is possible to have the gift of prophecy and to have it and crave pornography more than we crave the second coming. It is. It has happened. It is possible to speak in tongues and love your gold rings and your $1,200 suits and your $40,000 cars more than you love the gain of death. Therefore, never is it first those things in praying for revival. It is always first, Lord, take out the heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh so that we love Christ more than anything this afternoon. That leaving everything here, if we might just gain Christ, would be all our joy. That's revival. If every person in this room had that passion and that flame and that zeal and that urgency and that earnestness about your love relationship with Jesus Christ, this room, I believe, would probably flood with the gifts of the Holy Spirit as icing on the cake. But it is the cake for which I pray first. Lord, do it. And to that end, I preach on the resurrection of our bodies for those of you who are in Christ. I'm talking to believers in these days. If you are an unbeliever, my prayer for you is that you might listen in on this conversation and be rescued from the dead-end street of self-reliance so that you might be saved. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved, forgiven all your sins and given the hope of everlasting life and the resurrection of your body, clothed with immortality to live with the King of Kings forever and ever. That can happen while I'm preaching. So I don't mind if you listen. 
I prayed for you early this morning. I will pray for you over the next five weeks. But I'm talking to believers about what is your destiny, namely the resurrection of your bodies. Now, it seems to me that I ref- as I reflect on this, that the resurrection of the body does not have the same power and the same central place that it seemed to have in the early church. It doesn't have that in the evangelical church, in our church here, it doesn't seem to me. I've been pondering why that is. And one of the reasons I think it doesn't is because we have a wrong view of what the final state of our eternal destiny is. I think that we tend to use the word heaven, the common word, for what we're going to and will be in forever. And then we add to this word heaven a conception that is ethereal and is disembodied and is far away and sort of shrouded out there forever and ever. And we have comforted ourselves so often at the loss of believing loved ones with the fact that this is good. This is a good place to be right after death. That we have projected the goodness of it on out into eternity so that the thought that there's something better and very different for our eternity, we don't think about much. And therefore the resurrection of our bodies drifts to the periphery of our hope. And what we really hope for is this this heaven. Disembodied spirits floating around the throne and and singing with non-physical tongues. I really believe that we are out of step here with the early church and with the Scriptures. It seems that the early church comforted themselves in the face of death, not primarily with what happened the moment after death, but with the resurrection of the body. And that's strange. In fact, I'm going to invite you, if you want to, to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. Yes, I'm going to get to the text in 1 Corinthians 15, but let's go to 1 Thessalonians 4. And I want to give you an illustration of what I mean here and see whether you agree with me that one of the reasons we talk more about heaven than we do about the resurrection of the body is because we don't think the way Paul thinks. Now, in Thessalonica, uh, some believers had died. And Paul writes them a letter to encourage them. And... uh, The focus in his encouragement is not on heaven and the place where those believers are now, but what's going to happen to them at the second coming. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.15. 15, 15, chapter 4. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, what does that mean? Precede. Click, click, click. Got your answer? 
test it now with the next verse. What does that mean? We will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16. The reason we won't precede them is for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall be raised first. That's why we won't precede them. Now, if you were thinking, well, we won't precede them because they're already there, you were wrong. No, you're not wrong that they're already there. They are already there. Paul's just not making that point. Questions all over your faces. Go back and do this again. Verse 15. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede. To what? To what experience will we not precede them? Why did he not write, for they are already there? He didn't write that because that's not his central hope. It's true. It's just not his hope that he's offering to them in this text. His hope is... We're not going to precede them for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first so that we don't go before them physically into the experience of this glorious second coming and see with these eyes and hear with these ears and praise with this tongue without them while they're languishing in the grave and just their souls are in heaven. That was a terrifying prospect for the Apostle Paul, that we would enter into the receiving of Christ to his kingdom physically with our transformed bodies while they're just lying there in the grave. He couldn't stand that thought. And he said, it isn't going to happen. They are going to be raised first before we go. And then together with the Lord, we will rise to meet him in the air. And they'll have new bodies and we'll have new bodies. And this tongue and these ears and these eyes will be engaged with that physical Christ. And he will come and reign on earth forever and ever and ever. Now, if that isn't your central hope, you just might be slightly. It's not a terrible mistake we're talking about here. But slightly out of sync with the biblical hope of resurrection bodies. We will not precede them. Verse 17, the dead in Christ will rise first, then and only then, we can add, then and only then, when they're raised, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, not before them. You see the whole point here? Precede first with we will be caught up with them. We're talking about people who are in the grave, not people who are in heaven. Yes, their souls are in heaven. That's not his point. His point is, what about them? My mother is in the grave in Greenville, South Carolina. What about her? That's her. That's really part of her. With her. I will rise in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and then we will be with the Lord forever. And when it says with the Lord, mark you, it means in this context that resurrection body and this resurrection body and her resurrection body touching, seeing, hearing, 
speaking with these new physical members. Our final destiny and our eternal state is not an ethereal, disembodied state in heaven. It is to reign with Christ on the earth. Now, that's the sermon in two weeks. If you wonder, want to know more about the new earth, if your whole mindset has been that eternity is spent in some ethereal, disembodied thing called heaven, and you wonder, whoa, you mean Minneapolis? Forever? <laughs> My answer is something like that, but back in two weeks if you want to know. Today's text, finally, 1 Corinthians 15, is a beautiful picture of the resurrection of the body. Verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now that sounds like a blatant contradiction of the bodily resurrection, doesn't it? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. What does that mean? Well, it's not, that, it's not that complicated. I think the next phrase and the rest of the context makes clear. Flesh and blood is what we are by ordinary, mortal, perishable, sinful, fragile, decaying human nature. And, and that will not be what inherits the kingdom because the kingdom is durable it is eternal, it is substantial, it is unshakable, it is sinless. Something's got to happen here. Some change has got to happen. Flesh and blood means this, this as it is right now, getting old, all mixed up with sin and, and uh, fading away. Something's got to happen here. And what's described is not a leaving of it behind, but a changing of it. Our bodies will be greater. Verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling or flash of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Now, focus on the phrase, the dead will be raised. If God meant to start all over, why would he say that? The dead will be raised. Ruth Eulalia Piper. You fill in the blank. Will be raised. Not a new one made from scratch, disconnected from that there that needs raising, but she will be raised. He doesn't say, well, it can't happen because science has proven that bodies decay and become part of the ground. The molecules go up into the plant. Animals eat the plant. They run away. Humans eat the animal. And therefore, the molecules that were in my mother are now in somebody else. And so there's no way she could be raised. Now, you say, well, of course he didn't say that. that's a modern idea. It's not a modern idea. Even though they might have not have known molecules, they knew that when people died, they decayed, and, and animals ate the remains, and people ate the animals. 
Revelation says the sea will give up its dead. Everybody knows what happened to dead people when they go into the sea. They get eaten by fish. Now, if, 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 if you're a, a skeptic and you, and you like to elevate yourself to the level of God, you can say, look, see, it can't happen. It can't happen. I mean, what grave are you going to point to for all those people? What, what, where are you, what? And my response to that is, God is God. God is God. If He can say with one word, and the whole world's come into being, He can establish in some way that I can't even conceive now a real connection between the body which once was and the body that will be with a magnificent transformation so that there's a continuity there that I cannot fully account for. And I'm willing to leave it at that in God's awesome hands who can do things beyond what we ever dreamed. We shall be changed, it says. We shall all be changed, verse 51 at the end. Not we shall all be made, created new out of nothing. We shall be changed. That word grips me. It holds me to continuity with the old body. We shall be changed, 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 not started over again. That will be raised. Now turn back to verses 37 and 38 in this chapter for a little glimpse of an analogy with a seed falling into the ground. Paul is willing to risk some some, uh, analogies here. Verse 37, he says, That which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else, but God gives it a body just as He wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Now the point here is twofold. There's a connection between the seed and the plant. You plant a a wheat grain, you don't get a barley plant. And you plant this seed, you get a particular stalk of wheat. Not the one that's planted next to it. But a stalk of wheat is very different from a seed. So there's difference. It's more beautiful. It's more productive. A seed, little thing. And a plant, big, beautiful thing. But continuity and difference. Now look at the application in verse 42 to 44. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It. Mark it. It. (laughs) I feel so jealous of this that we hold to the continuity of our old and our new bodies. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Your body will be raised. Now, I can almost hear somebody say, depending on kind of reading you've done or what philosophies you like, what is the big deal. Why would he bother? I mean, 
good grief, isn't it love and joy and peace and righteousness and goodness and truth, all of which spirits are capable of that really counts who cares about arms and legs and ears and hair and eyes and nose and tongues. Good grief! This is so unphilosophical. That's the way the whole Greek world responded when Paul stood up in Athens. They laughed him out of town when he mentioned Anastasia, the resurrection of the dead. Who would want it, they said. And so I ask you, uh, why? Why this earthiness to our faith? Why? And we'll talk a lot about that in two weeks. Let me give you one answer as I close by directing you back earlier in this book to chapter 6. Chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians holds a key for why, why this concern with the body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Let me just say in advance, God created the world. He created matter. (laughs) And it matters that there's matter. He wouldn't have done it if it weren't important to do. He will never throw it away. He did not create the universe to say, oh, shoot, who needs that anymore? Why would he create matter? You are matter as well as spirit, and your matter matters. Why? Verse 19 and 20 of 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? For you, you, your body has been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. There's the answer. Why did God create trees and grass and clouds and water and fire and hands and legs and heads and ears and tongues? Answer, so that His glory might find another way of being externalized and made known to the universe of being. Everything is for the glory of God, including why you have a body. And it is an awesome thing to say, this body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wow! What an implication for what you do with your body. And why should it be raised from the dead? Because He's not done glorifying Himself with your body, with the glory that you have given Him with your body now. You know, it just occurs to me as I look out over you, that some of you are real frustrated with your bodies And how much it can glorify or can't glorify God. Did you know that the opportunity to glorify with your body, with all of its dysfunctionality and all of its sickness is a two-second length on this earth compared to an infinite length when you will have that body made new for which you can glorify God forever? Be patient. Be patient. Soon and very soon. 
you'll get to do it right. Just a closing word. The sting of death is sin. And Jesus covered the sin. And the power of sin is the law. And Jesus fulfilled the law. Therefore, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus. God will raise your bodies because He will not dishonor the saving work of His Son.